the awareness of space has changed tremendously. And between the marketing, if you will, and the awareness and what happens there as a finance person, I will tell you that people start looking to place their money somewhere. Um, Where are they going to invest? And so you've got two pillars here. One is a strong interest, and then there's the funding. And then the third element is the demand. So with these new programs, we have demand for new hardware, new engineering, new ideas. This is DIV Innovators, the show that celebrates the brilliant minds behind the technology and innovations that keeps our country safe. Here's your host, Dave Graff co-founder of Radical. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Heather Bolk, president, CEO, and co-founder of Special Aerospace Services, a tactical engineering and advanced manufacturing firm providing cutting-edge solutions to aerospace, aviation, defense, and energy organizations. Heather, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. That's fantastic. Well, to start off, let's just, you know, tell us more about your background, you know, and how you found yourself at Special Aerospace Services founding that company. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, a little unconventional. My background, I always start out by saying I'm not an engineer, which is the assumption. My background is finance, tax, and law. And prior to co-founding SAS, I did state and tax planning for affluent business owners and spent about 12 years doing that. And my business partner, worked for NASA. And he was at the beginning of commercial space at NASA. And we had a great partnership where he was running the technical side and then I was running the business side. Fantastic. I imagine you've seen space and aerospace change a lot in this time. <laughs> it's epic. I will tell anybody who will listen that even just past three or four years, the speed of change has been really profound. Uh, technology innovation is really accelerating that frontier, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And then not only the technologies, but also the players. You know, when we started the company, we had what I will refer to as all the usual suspects in the industry that we all knew and name recognition. And now today, it's a completely different ballgame. Why do you think that's changed? You know, why is it opened up to, you know, startups, newer companies? Is it, you know, what's your perspective on that that's allowed that transition? I think a lot of things have happened. If you think we started the company in 2007. And that was the impetus of commercial space, really within the NASA world. And I think we can thank those programs, you know, the the cargo to station and crew to station for a lot of publicity. Space is hip again. And we were saying that about five years ago, where the awareness of space has changed tremendously. And between the marketing, if you will, and the awareness and what happens there as a finance person, I will tell you that people start looking to place their money somewhere. Um, where are they going to invest? And so you've got two pillars here. One is a strong interest, and then there's the funding. And then the third element is the demand. So with these new programs, we have demand for new hardware, new engineering, new ideas. And I think of it as a, just this bubble that starts to evolve where you get new technologies and you need new hardware and, you, you, you know, and the industry has just grown tremendously. That's pretty neat. Well, it seems like to the business risk, you know, the financial risk of doing things in space seems to, you know, we get better. It also seems to have reduced to allow some of those bets to pay off. Yeah. I also think that if you look at how the industry was when we first started the business, you would have one large organization doing one big program. And now you've got a lot more diversification and you don't necessarily have one contract. You'll have multiple contracts. 
if you think about cargo to station on crew to station. So that has allowed more entrance as well. Perfect. So when you first, you know, met your co-founder, how, what was the impetus? Like, was there a certain project? You're like, I think we can go tackle the serve. How did you get into and say, okay, let's go. And what were those first projects? Yeah, that's kind of a fun story where the first contract was for COTS or the commercial orbital transportation. And that was bridging the gap, if you will, between NASA and these commercial space providers. And so it was more advisory services initially and helping these companies to navigate NASA, all the requirements, really what the expectations were going to be between that and then also helping them to submit proposals for the next phase of these contracts, which evolved into, of course, commercial crew. And it was interesting because there weren't a lot of SASs in the world at that point. It's got to cornered that market. And then it started to evolve. So now you have, you know, a full life cycle of services. Can you talk how that transition happened? And then, you know, what are the pillars of SAS right now? Yeah. So, so we started out, as I said, the strategic services, which was the advisory services. So we would come in and, and help an organization with their relationship with NASA and requirements and a lot of independent assessments. What happened was when some of those companies would win these big proposals, then they would come to us and say, oh my gosh, we need avionics support. We need propulsion engineers. We need software engineers. And so born out of that was the tactical engineer. And that's really where the majority of our team members reside and providing really critical engineering to our clients. For, we're about 50-50 uh, civil and VOD. And then as our client relationships deepened over the years, we started getting asked if we can do hardware. And I said, no one would be crazy enough to get into space hardware. So of course we're in space hardware. We made an acquisition in 2015 of a mom and pop machine shop. So your traditional seed mills and lathes. I completely revamped it into a 21st century AS9100 RevD facility where we're able to make hardware for all of our clients right now. So as you're building this out, you know, where do you see this, you know, as you continue, because you're obviously doing some research and development with that and continue to expand this. How do you see these pillars growing or do you, you going to add to them as your business continues to move forward? Yeah, the real focus right now is growing each one of those pillars. You know, you touched on R&D. We've got a fantastic Space Act agreement, thanks to my business partner and our long-term relationship with NASA. And so we've got the opportunity to really expand on technologies, not just at the SBIR level, but really at some of these more what I will consider to player markets, space scores, NASA partnerships, things of that nature. And for tactical engineering, the demand is so high for clients right now, for, for DOD as well as for civil. That, that is a key focus for growth there. And really, when we talk about talent, how are we making sure to get the right people in to support at the pace in which our clients are demanding? Absolutely. And I definitely want to circle back to that here in a little bit. But so you mentioned NASA a lot. How is it working with NASA? You have a longstanding relationship and as that expands out you know, to the Defense Department and different folks of that. How do you enjoy working with the government? Oftentimes, you know, I'm doing these, I hear they're frustrating to work with. The cyber contracts are challenging. What's your take on civilian, you know, the div working with the federal government? Yeah, I don't usually hear enjoying working with the government in the same sense. So <laughs> I'll start with that. I think when you enter into this industry, you just need to understand, and I, and I fought it for probably the first six months, is you need to understand that there are some really basic compliance elements that we have to adhere to everything from accounting to contracting and, and how we navigate that. So once you embrace them and you have that infrastructure set up and that mindset, working with the government is fairly predictable, if you will. 
And there's tremendous comfort in knowing what to expect, knowing the agencies that you work with and the compliance that you have to, to navigate. I think one of the biggest complaints that our industry has is working with the government, the lethargy in procurement. And I hear a lot of people in D.C. and as well as the industry talking about that piece of it. I don't think we'll solve that today unless you've got some great ideas. But that's probably the most frustrating piece. But what we found is that because we hire a lot of people from the government, NASA, for example, we will bring people into our organization and they really understand the, the inner workings and how we can navigate to get things done. So do you think, you know, the new Cibber, you know, awards and the acquisition system to bring out, you know, technology maybe quicker to the warfighter or to whoever your customer is, is that helping, you know, that, that type of contracting and, you know, the different ways they're engaging it, or is it still the same, just covered in a different wrapper? I like the innovation. I like the different thinking. I think that's very, very helpful, but we're not there yet. And I think OTAs are great. I think that there are a lot of different avenues. The problem with that is that you can't scale that, right? So while we might be really savvy in that area, the other five companies down the street might not have that insight. And so we don't have it where you can scale it in the industry for speed. And as you and I both know, that's a security risk to be able to cure faster than we do. Well, it's interesting saying they don't have the capability. It appears all the different compliance items you've discussed is a challenge for some of these companies. So they're, they're working on providing tactical engineering or manufacturing. They don't have the knowledge, the capability, the dollars, the resources to then build up these you know, compliance engines and you know meet the requirements that go across a lot. How would you, if someone was getting into this as an entrepreneur, how would you recommend you know, building that capability and being compliant while really your primary business goal is to make your widget, to provide your service. Yeah, I think it's, I think there's a business case. It has to make sense that the U.S. government is the right customer for you and having that long-term approach to having those things in place. I don't think you have to put in, you know, so if we look at cybersecurity and the criticality in our industry in general, what that compliance looks like, Getting outside support, not trying to do everything yourself. I mean, I'll, I'll tell my team, you know, twice a week, if we're not the expert in some area, maybe we should bring someone in to help us to get up to speed quickly. And that has been tremendous for us to be able to navigate is bringing in, bringing in experts and, you know, pay by the drink, if you will, to help us get some of those basic things in place, be it security clearances or more IT. But really having an understanding. I'm also a big proponent of mentors. So business to business mentors, we always think mentors are just, you know, Heather, the CEO over here is going to go mentor one other individual, but really the business to business mentors is big. Yeah, I think that's great advice. It's tough to do everything and do everything very well <laughs> on your own. Exactly. And what we can find ourselves doing in this, you, you could run an ice cream shop or an aerospace company, but if you're so focused on the down and in, then you're not making the revenue numbers that you need to make to be able to stay in business. Right. Oh, that's great. So you guys are working on, you know, one of the items that we're going to NASA with your AMU, your autonomous maneuvering unit. You know, can you talk a little bit about that? I thought that was pretty cool. And what that partnership with NASA on initiatives that like this, you know, mean to SAS? Yeah. So I'm, I'm probably not going to dive too much into that element just from a proprietary standpoint. I will share with you that it's exciting. The team is really excited. We have engineers from 21 years to 78 years old. And, and across that spectrum, people are excited about the new technologies. The partnership with NASA is exciting because this is an area where they're leaning in and we're leaning in. And we can look at the future, not just with NASA, but also partnering with the Space Force. 
And I'll, I'll digress for a second here in that in the past, we're in our 17th year in business. In 17 years, I heard so many conversations about someday NASA will partner with DMD. And then you would hear someone laugh and say, that's never going to happen. I had the honor of presenting to the Space Council back in 2022. That was the topic. And I'm excited to say that we're actually seeing that happen. And the Space Act Agreement is a perfect example of how are we sharing technologies. Space Forces is uh, partnering with NRO. NRO is partnering with NASA. So that's really a little bit of a teaser for where we're going with this. Oh, that's great. Do you think the you know establishment of Space Force has made a difference in being able to move some of those initiatives forward? I think it will. We haven't seen it yet, but I think we're not far out from seeing some epic movement there. Well, obviously, to build a company like you have since 2007, it takes more than you know just your capability, your service, but there's a lot of leadership and philosophy behind that. So what is your leadership philosophy to, you know, to start a company in 2007, grow it like you have, and then be in a fantastic place in the industry right now? Yeah, I think that when we look at the people that we bring in, we call them SAS material. So if you peel that end and back a little bit, it, it basically says we want to bring people into this organization who are passionate. And so my role as a CEO is to foster people's visions in making a difference in space. Whether you're a software engineer or you're a machinist helping to make a check valve for one of our key clients, how are we tapping into that passion and giving people enough autonomy to be able to do the things that they want to do with the support of the leadership of the organization. I tell people that we're not a good organization if you need to be told exactly what to do every single day. We like people to play and to think big. And the exciting part for me is that we've been able to, to scale that. There were questions, you know, probably 10 years ago, can you scale and get enough SAS material people in the organization? Uh, it turns out that the industry is just full of people who want to have that, that autonomy. Yeah. Have you seen the, uh, you know, a lot of time you hear about the younger folks coming out of, you know, colleges, their different viewpoint on everything from the amount you work to how you work to how you interact with people to, you know, the COVID's put people stay at home. How do you feel, you know, our younger generation, are they postured to, you know, really take us into the next level? I absolutely believe that they are. There was some resistance with some of the, what I'll refer to as more seasoned folks who came from the pillar organizations from 20 years ago. And the fact that they would not have everybody in the office every single day was just appalling. <laughs> my, my approach is significantly different. My approach is people who come to this organization are responsible. We give them the support and it's going to look a little bit different. And it's going to feel a little bit different. Engineers aren't necessarily the most agile folks when it comes to change. And what I will tell you is that over the past couple of years, now they're the ones leading that change and supporting. Our software engineering work is a great example of a more younger team working remotely quite often and coming up with new tools and new avenues. So I love it. I think it's exciting. And the notion that we have, we have different ways of thinking, but it, we had some slow rollers on that one for sure. Yeah, we deal with very similar things as we're you know, continuing to scale out as well. So well, you mentioned, you know, diversity of thinking. Tell me about your thoughts on diversity and the success of your team and, and again, your success at SAS. This is, this is probably one of my favorite topics because I have what we refer to as unintentional diversity. And that stems from not only the people that we have on the team, but also where we recruit and how we recruit. And that I will also say that diversity begets diversity. 
So when you come into an interview and you see someone that looks like you, it's amazing how comfortable you are to come into that organization. And so we have very, very high statistics. I was just talking with our manager for HR last week and he was sharing, I like to see what are our diversity numbers across the board consistently. We've been off the charts for women engineers and people of color. It's something that I care about. And so when I peel back and see why that's the case, MSU Denver is a great example. HBCUs, a great example. And thinking differently about where we recruit has, has been profoundly helpful. It's not to say that we don't recruit from the you know CU Boulder right down the street. We certainly do, but we've opened the aperture and that has paid dividends. Just incredible diversity, not only in our people, but especially in our way of thinking. When you have different backgrounds, you bring that experience. So the key to integrating that, if I can read back what I heard is, you're not forcing it. You're just looking in areas that allow for, you know, those opportunities to exist. Exactly. So when I have meetings with the Aerospace Industry Association and I hear some of the larger organizations really pushing that diversity, diversity, I think it's easier. We can be much more agile in SAS, but I will bring those same topics to them, which is think about where you're recruiting. And that is an easy way to be able to get more diversity. So, yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. I spent some time at a prime name not to be mentioned. And you do find, you know, your pockets of where they recruited from for engineers, will you specifically? Yeah. And huge numbers, you know, of that group, you know, so they've become comfortable with it. Those people recruit the same people from their same school. And so yeah, I think that is one of the keys is allowing yourself to look other places than what's just comfortable. It may take a little bit more time, but the you know, the role of rewards definitely can pan out. Well, with that, you know, I also heard, you know, listen to your TEDx belonging in the room. I thought that was pretty cool. So what has been the most challenging part of, you know, leading in this sector, you know, aerospace, even though there are companies, you know, some of the senior leaders of some of the bigger companies are female, but it's generally dominated by men. How was it, you know, beginning a company in this sector and then moving forward to where you are now? And how do you see the, you know, the trajectory of, you know, women in the aerospace workplace? I will tell you that it's changed a lot in the past 17 years. And I, I still see, I mean, I just got an email last night from a young woman at a university on the East Coast. And she said, I, I watched your TED Talk and I, you know, I relate and I understand where you're coming from and I'm, I'm dealing with the same situation. So we're, we're not there yet, but it, it has gotten better in the first few years. And I still see women do this because, you know, what is the path of least resistance? You dress like the men, you act like the men. And at some point I pivoted and I said, you know what, this is who I am. This is my role. So now I just wear band dresses in a sea of black suits. And <laughs> good news is I'm easy to find, but I think really embracing and not apologizing for being a woman. And that's been really important, not apologizing for being a mom as a CEO and just owning that. And that's not easy when you're looking to be accepted, to be able to get these contracts, to stay in business and to be comfortable in your own skin enough to be able to move forward. Today, we have many more women leaders that you can model yourself after in this industry, not to the level that we want to have. I mean, the statistics for women CEOs in this industry, it's appalling, but we have many more leaders with the primes. That's a great example. When I walk in the room and I, I sit down and I look around, I'm, you know, might be 12 to 15 guys and maybe there's one other woman in the room, which for me is a win. But as we see young women coming into the industry, that's a lot of when I give talks on and, and have people ask me to mentor them, tenacity and brace as, uh, as we move forward. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. I think that, you know, the mentorship 
and I've seen it. It's pretty powerful. Can you talk about Deanna? You know, you talked about the TEDx just real quick. I thought that was such a cool story that I thought our listeners might like to hear of just, you know, how you're out there trying to help, you know, we talked about workforce earlier and we can hit that, but, you know, I thought it was a pretty cool story. Yeah. So, so Deanna's uh, a story that I happily share. It's a tough story, but I think it's an important story because what we'll find is that sometimes the mentorship isn't in the the form that we think it might take. And so the Reader's Digest version is that her mom was cleaning our offices and she came to me one day and she said, I need to tell you, Heather, that we have an issue that Deanna has taken some things from your office. And I thought, what on earth is she taking? But anyway, it turns out that she took brochures. And I thought, you know, there are probably some pretty cool things you could take from my office. That's those models. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Got a lot of cool things. But she decided to take the brochures. And so I sat down with her and I I asked her why, of all things to take, why? And she said, well, I I needed to take them to, to bring them to school because my teacher said that I was lying, that I didn't really know anybody in the space industry. And that was a pivotal moment for me. And if you know me well enough, what was going through my mind at about 20,000 RPM is, okay, it's go time. Let's figure out how we need to support this young woman. What is going on in the school systems? So we we got a team together. I, I called the school and asked to come in and do a presentation in her in her teacher's class. And it was it was amazing. We showed up in force. So wonderful engineers. And I gave gave Deanna the backing that she needed to have to move forward. What happened out of that? She was very young. She was 13 when she got her SolidWorks certificate. We brought her in, uh, youngest intern at SAS. And that's what she wanted. That's all she really wanted was to be recognized to come in to be an aerospace engineer. And so her background, she's first-gen high school graduate, going to get emotional here, and she's going to be first-gen college graduate, CU Boulder Aerospace Program. She is the poster child of amazing and the SAS team has supported her. She's got an incredible mom who believes in her. And she's doing things that her family just could never even fathom. Wow, little things matter. <laughs> yeah. And I think listening, I'll just get on my soapbox for two seconds, the notion of how we mentor and the folks that we see, if we can open our eyes and look around for those opportunities that don't come in a formal package. Those are some of the highest impact that I've seen. So I know you do do this, shouldn't say do do, but <laughs> I know you focus on this, but you know, as a leader, as a woman in the aerospace and just philanthropy, what do you think about, you know, how do you give back? How do you, you know, just try to make it better for those around you and your community? Yeah. I love that every organization that I know does it differently. I think your philanthropy and your give back is a reflection of the organization's personality. So for us and our team, we've got engineers who they will come to me and say, hey, I've got an idea. I've got my kid's school is putting on a rocketry program. So we, we allow our team members to have engagement with things that matter to them. And then on more of a bigger scale, we've got partnerships whereby we're working with the school systems, rocketry programs. But something that matters to me intensely is that we don't just write a check, which I think that's an and, not an or, right? You write a check. And we get our team members out there. It's so powerful to see the kids, whether they're five or they're 25 at the universities, to see people that they can relate to and that they can start to emulate. I mean, it makes it real. And the other piece of that is 
the teachers struggle so intensely. You know, we're pushing STEM at all facets. The pressure on these teachers is immense. And so now we're asking them to really focus on, let's teach a space class. Well, in the meantime, they're trying to get kids to read. So the more my personal belief is the more that we can support these teachers and help them with the curriculum and come in and give some of these classes and go launch little rockets in these classes, we're supporting the teachers and we're inspiring the kids. Oh, that's awesome. My daughter actually was in Rocket Club. <laughs> so it does matter, but that's a hard trade-off, right? I mean, because you want people working, you're always behind timelines, you know, to then take that time of something that you don't see the immediate return, but you know, in the long-term, will both help out your company and help out people. Yeah. To that end, we also have a set number of hours that we allocate for folks and they just charge their time. Yeah. Build, build together that process. Yeah. And that's something that I think it took us a little bit to figure out is we're trying to encourage people to give back and how do we engage? And so we just said, hey, look, here are your volunteer hours. Go forth and, you know, do great things. Do something. That's awesome. So with that tied in a little bit is workforce development that arose. And those, that's something I've been interested in as well as how do we better educate and get folks into the workforce at all different levels, you know, manufacturing line to the STEM. What is your take on that? How do you think we're doing? And, you know, what can we do better, you know, as America to, you know, continue to encourage that? Because it's our processes and systems don't always seem aligned to maximize that. Yeah, I believe it is probably one of the most epic problems that we have in this industry. It's so profound that in the, the meeting that I had last week at the White House with Space Council, everyone is talking about it and no one has an answer. We, everyone has ideas. And so between the Space Council, which I, I commend them for taking a strong position, the Department of Defense, the SECDEF, I sit on a, on a group where we're helping to work through a study that's basically casting a net across the nation and seeing what people are doing, what organizations are doing, ecosystems are doing to try to support the whole notion of having a steady and consistent stream of folks in the defense industry base. Furthermore, how do you get folks cleared? Right, And that, that is another epic piece that we talk about quite a bit. I think in the past three to four years, we're in a better position because we understand the problem. I think the problem has been defined in such a manner that now we can parse it out. I'm passionate about this industry issue because anything is possible. When you have a problem of such epic proportion, any idea is worth listening to. And we've got some good ones. Huntsville is another key area where we're focused. We've got a wonderful team. We're building a big facility down there. Huntsville has done a fantastic job of having that triad of industry and government and academia. And so that is a great model. The question really is, how do you scale that across the country? And going back to the side of diversity, we don't want to just do it in pockets like at the Cape or Huntsville, where we know that we've got those space folks. How do you bring in diversity, tapping into the HVCUs and weaving them in? If you were, you know, queen of the land for a little bit, what would be like two initiatives that, you know, obviously they'd be very challenging, but how best do you think we could take the first you know, or continued steps to make an impact, make a dent in this problem? Well, I, I think because I'm industry, I'll tell you, it's, it's got to start with industry. And I say that quite a bit in these meetings, that industry has to be a part of the solution. In fact, much like when we look at solutions that came from the pandemic, the industry and the business folks who stepped in really helped to problem solve. I think the government has to be a key part of that. One of the ideas that I've been talking about is 
you know, if we talk about volunteering, how do we pay our folks to make sure we've got a budget in? Well, how do we pay our folks to help solve this problem? And so we've talked about grants. We've talked about, if you think like an SBIR, but on a larger scale, can we write a grant as SAS to XYZ agency? Maybe it's the Department of Labor, maybe it's NASA, to say, hey, we want to help to solve this. It will help to spur ideas, ideas that can be emulated across the country. So making sure that industry has the funding to be able to go out and spend the time to do this, those grants and that notion of being able to allocate the time and the resources is just simply imperative. And then the partnering with the schools is great. We've been out to HBCUs out in Ohio, continuing to do that, but it's the ad hoc that's not helping. So what do you think were the biggest challenges? Are you thinking it's more you know, like the manufacturing side, or is it more just the engineering talent? Like where is the workforce most challenged? Yes, all of the above. (laughs) I do believe at this very moment, I will tell you that I think it's in the skilled technical workforce. And that is a hot, hot topic for me. I'm known in the industry for saying not everyone needs a college degree. And I think it's important to understand what is the role? What is the skill set that we need? Do we need training? Absolutely. Do we need a four-year degree? Because that four-year lag time is also not helping our industry and the criticality of needing people. So what can we do to get folks trained and ready to hit the ground to be able to do the work that we need to do? I think manufacturing and skilled technical workforce, assembly folks, welders, it's a huge, huge issue. And If we look at the demand for hardware right now, it's unprecedented. So I will answer with still technical workforce. Will that change? Possibly, but but no time soon. Yeah. I mean, obviously it gets into a lot of how our country looks at things, our universities are set up. Because I would agree with you. I think not everyone needs it, but it's very easy then for, you know, well, my kids are going to go to college, but not everyone needs to go. You know, so it's easy to almost say it's not my problem, it's yours or my, my kids will still go to college. And so that it is a challenge. And then what the universities are teaching, not every degree is, while they're all probably important, you know, bring the same impact. And then they graduate after hundreds of thousands of dollars with something that's not really usable in the workforce. And so. That's right. It's it's interesting you say that because we have that conversation that it got exact conversation with, with the SECDAF study, which is, well, my kids are going to go to school, but everybody else doesn't need a college. Right. Right. It's, it's, uh, so, so I have mentioned that a lot of this is marketing to the parents. A lot of this is marketing in general. A lot of this is showcasing the power of what people are doing in, on the factory floor and how important that is. So there's marketing that can go into that too. Marketing and messaging. Everybody wants to talk about the rocket scientist, but you know, no machinist, no rocket. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think, you know, one of our big proponents and, you know, coming from the military, a mission matters and why you're doing things. And so I could be a TikToker and make a lot more money than I'm making now, but you know, well, no, I probably couldn't, but, (laughs) but the, you know, that mentality of look, the mission matters, be part of something great. It will fulfill you. And that is a marketing message. And then companies actually sharing that because you're right. The folks on your, your manufacturing floor are just as much a part of your final solution as the engineers. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, that was a hot topic last week at the White House, which is how are we messaging what we're doing? Not everyone is a rocket scientist. How do you get people into the industry? Uh, I think that that marketing and messaging, that's solvable, right? You've got some great people who can help us to do that. So that's a big stride forward for our industry. We've mentioned DC and going to the White House. How did you get there? 
That's a great question. Did you um, fly yourself? <laughs> I did not fly myself. Oh, that dang. I know. I that was my great my great transition to talking about you being a pilot. No, well, well, if my team members were listening in, they'd say, don't go there. Don't let her start talking about the airplane because she won't stop. Yeah. On that particular trip, I flew commercial, but any opportunity I get to fly, I'm all over it. So for the listeners, you have a, or you get your company has a Pilatus or you have a Pilatus and which I think is an awesome airplane. When did you come interested in aviation flying as a pilot? I got my pilot's license a little bit over 20 years ago. And uh, it's just something that I'd always wanted to do. Like I said, I'm not an engineer. And so my approach to flying is passion-based. It's not necessarily, you know, how the aircraft is functioning. Of course, I'm, I know the systems and I understand it and I love it. But my perspective on flying is entirely different than, than an engineer that would sit next to me. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, my, my, my first aircraft was a 1967 Piper Dakota. And I would strap the kids in the back with the lammies and their blankies and fly anywhere and everywhere. And uh, we moved to a Saratoga, I guess we probably 11 years after we had that one plane. And then the, the holy grail for me is the Pilatus PC-12NG. What a sweet ride, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like, like that. Yeah, thank you. It's, uh, it's great and it's, and it's perfect for the missions. It's perfect for, for flying from Colorado down to Huntsville. We fly over to Utah a fair amount, over to Hill Air Force Base and, and another prime contractor that we work with. So, Do you have another, uh, like a corporate pilot, or do you take care of pretty much all of it when it needs to get? It's, it's pretty much me. <laughs> I love it. That is great. Awesome. So someone wants to become an entrepreneur in space. They've done some space. How would you recommend, you know, to pursue this goal? Do you think it's important to go, you know, chase their passions or go do time? you know, with a prime or with a contractor, you know, how best to really succeed in, you know, the space environment. It used to be that you had to stamp your resume with one of the usual suspects, one of those big primes, you had to do your time. And it's not that way anymore. People coming out of school are looking for autonomy. They're looking for the ability to not just sit in a cube and kind of be told what to do. Here's your project for today. It's come into the organization, bring your ideas, bring your thoughts, how do you break in? It's still an issue. I still get emails from people who say, we've been trying to get our resume into XYZ companies. We've got 20 resumes out. And I'll look at the resume and say, well, this, this is a no-brainer. You know, how do we get past those filters? And what I refer to as the who you know aspect, which is tough. It further creates diversity as an issue. Right. They don't need a chat GPT to work on those resumes to really get them through the filters. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And so I think that where I've seen the most success in somebody who's having a hard time getting into the industry is just reaching out and being bold and doing whatever it takes to get your information in front of. I mean, I take emails and texts from people that I think there's got to be a better way. That's a barrier that, that I'm frustrated with. I don't have an answer for that. We can go out to the universities and we can continue to, to market ourselves, but it's those folks who really want to get in. I tell people in these STEM meetings and these workforce meetings, it's a weird conundrum. We've got people who really, really, really want to get into the industry. And then on the other side of the river, we've got industry who's saying, gosh, we need people. And so somehow bridging that gap, is just essential. Absolutely. So back to SAS a little bit. Where do you see SAS in three to five years? Where, where are you going to be in the market? Uh, just give us a glimpse into where you're headed. Yeah. The demand is so big that that curve is pretty steep. And so 
we're going to continue to grow. You were talking about the life cycle chart on our website, and each one of those is, is continuing to grow, making sure that we have the right leaders in place in each one of those divisions of which we do. And they know that the notion is maintaining our existing clients, which is essential, and then making sure that we continue to grow with our clients as they take on new projects. We may do an acquisition or two. That's been rumored. And I think that's an exciting element where we're just big enough now where we can start to have some fun to be able to create synergies with other partners. New technologies coming out of our R&D group and then further expanding. I don't see other divisions coming in per se because we've got so much opportunity within each one of those that most of our clients take advantage of all of those divisions. So they'll bring us in for strategic, tactical, hardware, and, and all the way around that life cycle. So we're going to keep doing whatever we're doing, bringing on new people and, and new projects. It seems like, and I apologize, I didn't have to or take time to look this up, but it just kind of hit me. It seems like you grew very organically. Did you take outside capital? And what's your view on venture capital in this market now, especially as you have the potential to grow as you have great product market fit across your sectors? You know, there's a time and a place. And so we bootstrapped from the word go. So for 17 years, you know, if, if we had to go forego paying ourselves to make payroll, that's what we did. And that bootstrapping is, it's brutal, but it has paid dividends because we were able to take more risks based upon, you know, that organic growth. It's slower as opposed to taking outside capital. Markets have changed significantly over the years. And so I think when you evaluate, do you take money? Do you not take money? It can be a possibility, but it really depends on where you are in the industry, the technologies that you have and the business model that you have. I don't pass judgment one way or the other because I, I think it, it is it is very individual per organization. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for sharing your time. I mean, what a great story. You know, you're one of the industry leaders and it's been fun getting to know you through this time. But if people want to learn more, they want to continue to, you know, follow what SAS is doing or other bulk specifically, how best would they do that? So I admittedly, you just hit my sore spot because I am not the social media guru, <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you that LinkedIn is LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, and our webpage are probably the best ways to keep up to speed. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Heather. I appreciate your time and taking time to share with our listeners and uh, let's keep in touch. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of DIB Innovators brought to you by Radical. For the latest episodes, search DIB Innovators on your podcast platform of choice or visit us at Radical.com, R-A-D-I-C-L.com.